and welcome to uh, our program today here at the Cato Institute. My name is Patrick Eddington. I'm a senior fellow here working issues essentially at the nexus of the Bill of Rights uh, and so-called national security. Um, I'm really glad that you're with us today. I think we have a, a great uh, program on for you here today. I do have a couple of uh, admin announcements that I need to make here uh, really quickly. Uh, just make sure that everyone has got, for those of you who are here in the auditorium, please make sure that any of your electronic devices are either off or at least muted uh, so we can make sure that we keep things rolling here in a very smooth way. We will be taking uh, questions both uh, online and in person. We'll save the in-person for the last 10 minutes to be clear. Uh, the online audience may join us uh, and submit questions directly on the event webpage uh, on Cato.org, Facebook, YouTube, and on X, otherwise known as the service that was previously known as Twitter, uh, and using uh, the hashtag century of surveillance. Um, I want to uh, also say that when we get to questions here in the audience, uh, when you stand and you are recognized, please make sure that you speak clearly uh, and give us your name and, and affiliation, uh, if any. <clears throat> you know, I spent the better part of a decade at the Central Intelligence Agency back in the late 1980s through the mid-1990s, uh, and it was a, a perfect experience, essentially, to kind of learn about what I think many of us consider to be secret government. Um, what I did not realize when I was working at the CIA was just exactly how many hundreds of millions, perhaps billions, perhaps trillions of classified documents there are at this point. Uh, and our guests today are going to really help us kind of untangle that. Uh, how did we get to this point? Why do we actually have so many of these classified documents? Is it really necessary? What does it cost us? Not just in dollar terms, but in terms of our ability to hold our elected and unelected uh, officials accountable. And our topic today, of course, the subject of this entire program, uh, is this book, The Declassification Engine, What History Reveals About America's Top Secrets, or perhaps what it doesn't necessarily reveal uh, about our top secrets. The author, uh, Matthew Connolly, uh, is a professor at Columbia, uh, specializing in uh, international and related history. Um, and joining us also uh, over here on the end uh, is my partner in crime uh, in the Freedom of Information Act and trend government transparency business, uh, Nate Jones of the Washington Post. Gentlemen, thanks, thanks for joining us uh, so very much. I, I want to just kick off here by uh, pulling something directly out of the preface of the book, Matt. And, and at one point you say, quote, Lawyers, however, are paid to dream up other people's nightmares, end quote. Give us the context for that statement, uh, because it really is quite the story. Taxes. Uh, I have nothing against lawyers. Uh, I come from a family of lawyers. Um, might have even been one myself if I hadn't gone down this other path. But, um, but yeah, uh, as Patrick um, uh, just told you, I was in a room full of lawyers. Uh, this was in a foundation um, where we were waiting to find out if my team at Columbia was going to be given a grant that was going to allow us to begin doing this research using you know, a trove of declassified documents. Now, all of these have been declassified. Um, we weren't trying to use any leaked information. Um, what we were going to do, though, is uh, to use new methods from data science you know, to see what we could discover. You know, about how it is the government decides what's secret, um, when and how they decide what can be released to the public. 
And what these lawyers uh, who had been hired by the foundation told us was that everybody involved in this project could be prosecuted under the Espionage Act. Uh, and then they enumerated a number of other statutes um, uh, whereby we could also be uh, subject to felony prosecutions. And, and did you have your own counsel in the room when this took place? Oh, luckily, yes. I was lawyered up. Uh, <laughs> Columbia um, you know, had provided me with a lawyer. <laughs> uh, they have their own lawyers, of course, but they'd hired outside counsel uh, who's very experienced in this area. Um, and whereas the you know, the former head of major crimes in the Southern District and the former general counsel of the NSA, you know, they had written, I think it was like 60 pages, mm -hmm. probably charging about $10,000 a page. <laughs> this, uh, this one First Amendment lawyer, you know, produced a memo, I think it was about three pages long, and just blew them out of the water. I mean, there was no precedent for anybody being prosecuted yeah. um, using, you know, basically declassified documents, you know, just to learn things about the world. And luckily, the First Amendment is a really powerful protection, you know, especially for academics and journalists, because long ago, the Supreme Court recognized that if you don't allow people to learn things, you know, then civilization dies. Um, so that was a close call because uh, that foundation in the end decided that they didn't want to take the chance. Um, but luckily, the MacArthur Foundation came along and they did give us the funding. So we were be able to, to begin that work. So what is the History Lab? Yeah, so the History Lab began that way, began about 10 years ago. Um, we're a team of uh, social scientists, data scientists, developers, engineers, and what we've done over that uh, period of time is we've aggregated what we think is the largest uh, collection of declassified documents in the world. It's a database. Um, now, people may correct me, but they haven't yet, <laughs> because uh, you know, there are large you know, volumes of declassified documents. You know, the government has, it's estimated, you know, over 20 Washington monuments worth of records uh, that have not been released to the public. Um, but we've done a lot of hard work, it was mainly my colleagues actually, did the hard work of turning all those documents into data. Um, and it's for that reason now that we can begin doing a whole series of experiments you know, learning, for instance, you know, what kinds of topics tend to be classified at the highest level, you know, who's in the room when things are still withheld decades later, uh, how long does it take you know, for, uh, say, a document about nuclear weapons to get declassified versus one that's about UFOs. And you know, the new frontier now is uh, you know, these frontier models for large language models like ChatGPT, uh, which I think are going to take us to a, a whole new level. Nate, could the Washington Post use something like this? <laughs> well, well, Jeff uh, Bezos just has to write us a small check, and we're in business. You know. just, uh, just as long as the journalists aren't turned into bots. <laughs> <laughs> what, are your, what are your impressions, essentially, of, of this incredible book that he's written and the, sure. and, the, and the contribution, essentially, that it's making to you know, our understanding of how we got to this insane place? Uh, it was a page-turner. Couldn't put it down. Uh, I'm re reminded of another book talk where Matthew was the host uh, a while ago. It was a book of Alex Wellerstein, Restricted Data on Nuclear Secrecy. Um, and Matthew erupted almost in his comments <laughs> on Alex's great book, Where's the Outrage? Um, and I cannot say that in this. Uh, every page is dripping with outrage, and as a person that spent the better half of all of my career fighting for access to information, um, the outrage is, is just. Um, so it's, this book, if you haven't read it, is not just a prescription for um, possible way to increase 
Americans' access to their data, um, their records that they paid for, um, but also a history of how this came to be, um, starting uh, from the atomic bomb all the way up to the present. Uh, and uh, I was absolutely fascinated. Can't recommend it enough again and looking forward to digging in today. Well, and, and I think you know, one of the points that Matt makes in the book is that during most of the history of our republic, this was not an issue. This really wasn't a problem. We didn't have you know, permanent formalized structures uh, within the executive branch creating this mountain of information. Uh, and at this point, I'd, I'd like to go to this uh, first slide. If you take a look up here, uh, we're looking at the total number uh, of lines encoded in communications from U.S. legations located in Europe. And this comes straight out of Matt's book, actually. Can you talk about you know, how you got to that particular point there? Yeah, sure. I mean, I created the graph, but this is actually someone else's research. And, and by the way, uh, Alex Wellerstein's book, Restricted Data, is phenomenal. It's a fantastic book. Um, and I'm fortunate. There's now, you know, a number of scholars uh, working on the history of secrecy. There was almost nobody doing this 10 years ago. Sam Levick has a book coming out on the history, history of the Espionage Act. Um, this, I wish I could remember, but if you take a look at my book, you'll find the, the original research was not by me, but what I did was just, you know, I like to look at graphs. I sometimes find them illuminating. So in this case, I just took a, a table and I turned it into a graph showing, you know, how much of America's uh, diplomatic communications uh, was encrypted uh, beginning, you know, in the early Republic, uh, right up until the uh, Civil War. And to me, it really tells better than, than words could how it is that, yes, for a time, you know, when we still had our a revolutionary generation, you know, the founding fathers, uh, people like Jefferson, Madison, Hamilton, Washington, you know, while they were still, um, you know, in, in the leading positions in, in our government, um, you know, the U.S. did, you know, uh, uh, encrypt communications. Um, it's well known, you know, that some of them were experienced operatives themselves um, or agent handlers, like in the case of Washington. But when that first generation passed from the scene, um, this, you know, way in which we try to protect communications, like every other power of the day, um, that just faded away. Um, and it wasn't because the U.S. lacked the capacity. In fact, you know, Thomas Jefferson developed an enigma-like encryption device that would have foiled, you know, any contemporary code-breaking office. And for the, for the benefit yeah. of those who, who may not have caught the enigma reference, of course, that was um, <clears throat> the uh, encryption device that uh, I think it was the Poles uh, prior to World War II actually developed, but the Nazis wound up uh, taking the device, essentially, and turning it into... Uh, a system to encode, you know, their critical communications. One of the reasons why the Allies won World War II uh, is because a group of incredibly talented uh, cryptographers uh, at Britain's uh, Bletchley Park were successful ultimately in penetrating that code. Uh, and that's one of the reasons why so many Nazi submarines were destroyed in the Battle of the Atlantic ultimately. And that was pivotal in terms of allowing the United States, when it ultimately entered the war, to be able to successfully tran transport troops and war material over to Europe and ultimately launch uh, the invasion at Normandy and, and finally destroy the Nazis. So, you know, the, that whole issue of encryption uh, and how valuable it is uh, in terms of, you know, keeping communication secure, uh, there's no way to underestimate that. And in our modern world, of course, uh, those of us, you know, who use apps like Signal uh, or other encrypted apps, we do that in order to do for the same reasons that the founders did you know, whether it was Jefferson or, or Washington or any of the others. And that is to essentially keep our communications private and out of uh, unfriendly hands. 
but I think this, this graph to me speaks to how much things have changed essentially, what it was like back in the day, if you will, before we had this giant national security state mm -hmm. compared to what it is today. Yeah, Maybe. and, and to, I was just gonna say, notice the period of the Civil War. You know, that was a time in which the US conducted open diplomacy you know, the uh, President Lincoln decided that uh, the Union cause would be better served by conducting American diplomacy in the open. Uh, so he began to publish American diplomatic communications, uh, sometimes just a few months after they were first delivered. And this, you know, caused an uproar in foreign capitals. You know, no other country in the world was doing this. Uh, but it just shows, like, how even in wartime, in some cases, the U.S. was really radically different, radically more accountable and transparent than other countries of the day. Uh, I want to give the audience a taste, just a little taste of Matthew's outrage. <laughs> he writes, <clears throat> we will see how in this book, in time, this culture of secrecy became a cult in which inductees were indoctrinated, took oaths swearing their loyalty, and recognized one another through shared rituals and special badges. He quotes Max Weber, quote, Every bureaucracy seeks to increase the superiority of the professionally informed by keeping their knowledge and intentions secret. But he didn't just bash from the outside. He got a uh, senior CIA official to tell him. I don't think the official gave him his name. <laughs> but the CIA official said, nonetheless, quote, the best engineering decisions are the ones debated in public. The very worst are the ones hidden from scrutiny under the cloak of secrecy. So that makes me ask the question, um, is secrecy, including national security secrecy, uh, at odds with the scientific method of hypotheses, complete citations, replicable results, and peer review? Yeah, usually. Yes, <laughs> with few exceptions. I mean, there certainly have been, you know, very impressive scientific uh, projects undertaken under the cloak of secrecy. I mean, famously, I think now we're all thinking about the Manhattan Project, right? Uh, even if you haven't seen the, the Christopher Nolan film. But actually, one of the scientists, uh, uh, one of the leading scientists as part of that project said that if they had not conducted that research in secret, they probably could have deployed a weapon 18 months earlier than they did in the end. So just think of it. Imagine, you know, if the U.S. had been able to deploy atomic bombs in early 1944, you know, how different the course of the Second World War might have been, right? So certainly, I wouldn't dispute the idea that there's sometimes a place for secrecy, but then all the more reason then, right, that we have to be discriminating and judicious and make sure that we're actually identifying the information that really could kill people. Uh, and the rest of it needs to be available to the American people so we could keep our government accountable for all the other decisions that they make. What are, what are some examples of, of these real true secrets that should be protected, um, that should be protected? Yeah, well, I would say, for example, you know, the identities of, of covert operatives, you know, uh, or even, you know, in some cases, the people who speak with American diplomats thinking they, they can speak in confidence. Um, you know, I'm not a fan of WikiLeaks. You know, I, I think it was, it was reckless uh, when, you know, whether it's through poor operational security or poor, you know, choice of, of partners, they allowed hundreds of thousands of diplomatic cables to be released. Um, because, you know, if now you go back and you do a keyword search to protect closely, you will find dozens and dozens of names of people whose lives were then put at risk, right? Merely because, you know, in some cases they were human rights activists and others, they, they committed the crime of speaking to an American diplomat. Mm -hmm. So absolutely, there, there is an important place for secrecy. 
Um, I'll give you an example, you know, how on the other hand, <laughs> you know, the United States sometimes doesn't even protect its own. Um, just think of the Office of Personnel Management hack, right? That's how millions of people, some people in this audience perhaps, now your personal information, Patrick, for instance, you know, Patrick's most personal information, I'm not saying he has any secrets necessarily, we don't know, um, but when he was asked, you know, about his uh, drinking alcohol, taking drugs, money problems, gambling, and they also asked, you know, typically as they would, right, they would have asked his friends, his employers, sometimes even their doctors and so on, everybody has to give up this kind of information, you know, to get a security clearance. All that information now is in the hands of the Chinese government. None of those records were classified. Which, None of them. Which just brings us to essentially the issue here of you know, trying to actually keep a handle on that which really should genuinely be you know, under lock and key, so to speak, mm-hmm. uh, and that which you just really shouldn't uh, you know, necessarily be concerned about. And, and I love this graphic because, number one, it, it says at the very bottom, you can see there on the actual graphic itself, approved for release by NSA on 4-17-2018, FOIA case number. There is nothing classified about this document. It contains no classified national security information on it. The fact that they were concerned about an insider threat, I don't understand for a single minute how that could ever have necessarily been classified. But that, to me, is a prime example of overclassification uh, and hanging on to a document that really had absolutely no business. Um, you you know, Patrick, this particular uh, poster was one I found at the National Archives uh, among records uh, also released by the National Security Agency. Almost all of them related not to what the NSA typically does, right? I call this chapter the secret of secrets because, as you were saying, like if you can't keep your own information, your own communication secret, then nothing is secure. But interestingly, the National Security Arch- uh, Agency, when they were releasing records, there was almost nothing about, uh, you know, with few exceptions, like their precursors when they conducted Army intelligence, you know, when they did the Venona operation, yeah. for example. Otherwise, there's almost nothing now we know, even from NSA operations from seven. 70 years ago, right? You know, their success or failure in decrypting Soviet communications from the entire period of the Cold War is almost completely unknown. But they did release a lot of records related to things like fiscal security, personnel security, like how they conducted, um, you know, background checks, who they interviewed, how they did it, um, how it is they protected their fiscal uh, facilities and so on. So what's interesting about that for me is I was able to write a whole chapter, how you would hack into the NSA. (laughs) Because even back in the 1950s, those records, many of them were never classified. Like the blueprints for NSA headquarters at Fort Meade were not classified. Like you could have seen, and you still can if you go to the National Archives, all these schematics about their duck, I'm not saying you should do this but <laughs> you know all this information's out there so like it's bizarre in some cases the things that you know like this poster for example is treated with utter solemnity but it's released along with all these other things that really could do damage and and i think it's important for folks to understand that nsa's ability to do this kind of thing stems from its original authorizing legislation passed in 1959 it's known as the national security agency act of 1959, it's public law 86-36. And section six of that particular statute gives the NSA the ability to withhold literally anything, which is exactly how we get this kind of insanity here that we've been talking about. Um, and that's, that's one of the major problems that, that we have with respect to this secret government and this secret history of our own country 
is that so many of these, they're, they're called so-called B3 statutes, and in the, in the world of the Freedom of Information Act, there are nine specific exemptions that federal officials can invoke in order to withhold information, and one of those is known as the otherwise by protected or otherwise protected by statute provision. That's known as the FOIA B3 exemption. And there are literally dozens of agencies and departments that have this. And the Government Accountability Office has done reports over the last few years that show that the number of those exemptions passed by Congress and signed into law by, by presidents of both parties has simply exploded over the last you know, several decades. So we, we see not only the internal bureaucratic machinations here to try to basically conceal information that would otherwise expose waste, fraud, abuse, even criminal conduct, we see efforts on the part of the people that you and I elect <laughs> to keep us in the dark through the provision of these kinds of, of statutes. So we have both a bureaucratic problem, but we also fundamentally have a political and I think overarchingly a mindset problem. One of those B3s, Pat, you forgot to mention, is kind of important. It's to protect the technology used to grow watermelons. <laughs> I don't jest. You can look at the GAO report, and that's one of them. Um, of course, seriously, more seriously, um, I'm sure that if the Department of Agriculture really wanted to protect that, if it w really was a serious issue, they would have been able to uh, use one of the other Freedom of Information Act exemptions. So it's an example of the absurd. Um, so we just talked about something that was not classified that should have been classified, probably, um, the schematics to the NSA. But... Uh, I want to raise another point, and that's that um, lots of times we talk about declassification, properly classified information, and that goes to an executive order. It's currently Executive Order 13526. Um, as uh, Matthew says in his book, it's usually updated by every president, but it has not yet been updated for the past two administrations. Um, but, I, but my point is, is that just because that executive order defines what is and is not properly classified does not mean that these records pass the laugh test. Um, th so, for example, I think most people in this room probably learned in middle school that the Cuban Missile Crisis ended when Kennedy secretly negotiated to remove the Jupiter missiles from Turkey in exchange from the Soviet Union moving its missiles um, from Cuba. The Department of Defense and most other agencies redact that in every record, and it cites to Executive Order 13526 as a properly classified secret. So my question is, um, if things that are defined as technically properly classified um, are things that have already been reported in history books in the New York Times, how much authority and respect should we give to what sometimes say as the conversation, some people say as conversation ender, it's classified? Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, I, I may surprise you about this, Nate, because, uh, you know, I, too, uh, I, I have a good time looking at some of the more ridiculous things that end up getting classified at the highest levels. But, you know, sometimes, you know, when I see, for example, like, I think the, the classic example would be like the drone program in, over Pakistan. So everybody knew because p officials, you know, were constantly leaking information about how the U.S. was operating a program 
you know, that was killing, you know, both Afghan and, and Pakistani nationals. They've been doing it for years. Every time they leaked information, they wanted to tell us, like, how effective it was and how few people, how few innocent people, that is, were being killed. And so it was public knowledge, right? I mean, there, I think it was the ACLU. They put it together a really helpful infographic where you could look at the whole timeline over and over again. Senior officials telling us all this information about, about that program. At the same time, over and over again, they denied FOIA requests, right? Uh, and continually, they, they cited the same reason, that this was an operation that had never been uh, acknowledged. Um, and so there was no public information. So, you know, what do we make of this? Well, you know, I come from a background, I, I spent many years studying diplomatic history. Diplomats are past masters at talking around things that everybody knows, but nobody can acknowledge. So in this case, you know, if the United States had officially, at that time anyway, if they had acknowledged that they were operating a program that was killing Pakistani nationals, that would have created a diplomatic incident. You know, the government in Pakistan would have had to explain you know, to uh, the people of Pakistan why it is they were permitting a foreign power to kill their citizens, fellow citizens on their own soil. So this is the kind of thing you know, that, that happens. And in a way, I understand it. You know, maybe I, I absorbed too much of that world when I spent years studying it. So I would draw a distinction between examples like this where, yes, things are public knowledge, but no, they're not um, officially acknowledged, and examples where we just know it's incompetence, or worse, right, when they're actually covering up, like, uh, you know, activity that, that anyone would, would uh, deem to be illegal, um, or, or, uh, or worse than that, worse than a crime, um, an error. <laughs> so sometimes there's real overlap because many people think that the drone program itself was criminal. Um, but yet and still, there are distinctions that diplomats are paid to, to make, and, and I think that would be one of them. We have uh, uh, an anonymous um, <clears throat> viewer who's posing really kind of a, a threshold-type question, so I, I, I want to take this opportunity to, to read it. Why are agencies allowed to control the declassification process? They have a bias in favor of secrecy. Should the U.S. set up an independent agency to operate the declassification process? Yes. <laughs> the, the answer is yes, uh, because when you look back uh, the history, and, and I wrote a short piece, if anybody wants to hear the, a longer version of this, I wrote it in, uh, in Time, um, and the, uh, the title was, you know, uh, the president is not going to fix the broken secrecy system. Just ask Joe Biden. <laughs> because I give these examples from when Joe Biden was a senator. He was actually a charter member of the Senate Select Committee on Intelligence. And back in 1977, you know, he was telling everyone who would listen that the only way in which you were ever going to get sanity for what was already a, a system that had gone out of control uh, was if Congress acted and they created a statutory basis for yeah. defining uh, national security information. Um, and he used that as a threat, right, to um, imp impel the Carter administration to make meaningful changes in the executive order. And they did. Um, now, unfortunately, a lot of those, you know, uh, changes in the end, they, they were absorbed, like the Borg, you know, by, <laughs> by the national security agencies, and they were rendered almost null. They, the amount of classified information actually increased, you know, after Carter implemented this order that was supposed to bring more transparency. Um, and so to me, that's a great example. Like, yes, you can sometimes get Congress to act. And I do have high hopes, uh, and I hope we get to talk about it, some of the legislation that, that's now before Congress. Um, but at the end of the day, I think it may be necessary to create an independent authority. Like I think, for example, the Federal Reserve. 
right? When you don't, you think something is too important to be under the direct control of either the president, you know, or legislators, then yes, sometimes you have to create an independent entity that has the, the power to act in that domain. You know, what's interesting about essentially um, the history of how the executive branch got control of this classification process, it, it, it's really both fascinating and depressing at the same time, because if you actually look at the text of the Constitution itself, the word secret appears only once in the entire document. And it's not in connection with Article 2, which covers the presidency. It's in Article 1, Section 5 specifically, which covers uh, Congress and Congress's ability essentially to conduct its business, create its own products, and to make them secret if it so chooses. So the reality is Congress was the original classification authority in this country. But what's happened over the course of the last two centuries, essentially, is that Congress has essentially largely ceded that. You know, the last time that Congress really asserted itself in this area was during the Church Committee uh, period in the, in the 1970s, after a number of these major scandals involving the FBI, my beloved former employer, the Central Intelligence Agency, and the National Security Agency came to light. And in the course of doing that particular investigation, Senator Church made it very clear, and he had, he had the full bipartisan support of his colleagues uh, on, on the committee. He made it very clear to the Ford administration, if you have objections to what we are going to include in our report that are executive branch documents, we will listen to those objections and we will make a decision. But in the end, this is our work product, and we will include in it what we deem necessary in order to inform the American people. And to the best of my knowledge, that is the last time that Congress has really aggressively asserted this authority most of the time when there's, there's any kind of question about a classification issue involving an executive branch document, they defer to the executive branch. I think personally, I think that sets a terrible precedent. I believe it to be unconstitutional on its face, but this is the pattern in practice, unfortunately, that has developed over the course of the last two, uh, 200 years and especially in the course of the last 50 years. You know, Pat, just to piggyback on that, Nate, um, I, everybody should. Patrick gave testimony before the Homeland Security and Government Affairs Committee back in March, and, uh, uh, and he made that excellent point. You know, if you actually read the black letter text of the Constitution, I defy you to find the legal authority whereby the president is able to decide what the rest of us are allowed to know. It's not there. <laughs> it's judicial judicial activism yeah. for the most part. Right. For the most part. And and I also liked uh, since I'm on uh, you know Senator Rand Paul's home turf here, I want to pay tribute. Uh, <laughs> Senator Paul, you know, said uh, I think an unscripted remark, speaking from the heart, it seemed. You know, said that uh, you know basically the president, Democratic and Republican presidents, had taken power away from Congress, and it was time for Congress had to take it back. And he said we need a hammer. He's absolutely right about that. The only way that Congress is going to wrest at least some of that power away from the executive is if they use the threat of, of, of creating law, right? Which is, I think, what we're now talking about. At least I, I hope we will. Yeah. I want to give a, a bittersweet example to the questioner's uh, question about an independent agency. So um, the Interagency Security Appeals Classification Panel, Classification Appeals Panel, ICECAP, is not really... is within the National Archives, but it acts very independently. Um, there were years when they would review classification decisions by the agency, or if the agencies missed their deadlines, they would take the record and then say, oh, you missed the deadline, this needs to be released. Um, and it infuriated Pat's friends at CIA, I know for a fact. <laughs> um, so including pre records at the Presidential Library. Um, and in the heyday, uh, ICECAP was 
declassifying a lot of stuff, a lot of high-level stuff. Some of the gems on the National Security Archive, where I'm still a fellow's website, are from ICECAP. Um, and we run around town heralding it. Um, but I guess it was a victim of its own success, or uh, there was the return of the classification empire, because <laughs> as Michael points out uh, in the, in Matthew, sorry, as Matthew points out in the latest uh, ICECAP report, I believe they declassified one case in the last fiscal year. Um, so that's a bittersweet example of something that was working that has now essentially turned off the spigot. You know, what's also interesting about ICECAP is that this is a, a body made up of representatives from the Pentagon, from the State Department, the CIA, et cetera, uh, all of them with security clearances and so on, right? All of them are occupying responsible positions. And if I remember right, I think in two-thirds or more of the cases, at least, they decide that actually information that was withheld from the public should not have been withheld from the public. So this gives you a good sense about the error rate <laughs> of withholding information. When even government officials representing these agencies you know, decide that when you actually look at the documents that this information is being improperly withheld from the government, you know there is something deeply wrong with the system. And, and by the way, uh, I have friends like Mary Cerati, for example, have written excellent histories. Uh, for example, the, the end of the Cold War, NATO enlargement. We need more history like that, right? I mean, if ever there was a time, we need to understand, revisit, right, how the Cold War ended and the beginnings of the conflict between Russia and Ukraine. Now is the time. The only way she was ever able to do that research and publish that book was by using ICECAP. But now it's basically unusable. There are so many people who've uh, lined up in that queue. It, you could take, it would take years to get through the backlog. Even if they were deciding more than one case a yeah. year. <laughs> <laughs> we have uh, another person who is posing a question anonymously here. Um, should the U.S. adopt a, quote, 30-year rule or whatever, where documents will be automatically declassified after 30 years, barring an affirmative agency showing that continued classification is in the national interest? To a certain degree... That theoretically is already supposed to be happening under the executive order uh, that Nate referenced, you know, just a moment ago. But as, as Matt's book really does a great job of showing, the sheer volume of information right now, and I'm, I, and I'm just thinking about paper because it's the paper records for the most part that I wind up dealing with uh, for the kind of historical research that I've been doing. It is literally measured in the tens of millions of pages. And the National Archives uh, staff, which has taken a lot of hits, essentially, from an attrition standpoint uh, as a result of COVID and some other things, um, they're simply overwhelmed, which is why the proposal that Matt has been making and trying to get folks around town to buy into is so important. Because if you can take that stuff, scan it into a system, essentially, apply the kind of methodology that Matt and his team has developed you'll have the ability to figure out what really ought to still be classified. In the case of most of this material, it's probably you know, 30, 40, 50 or, or more years old. The vast majority of it, I think, undoubtedly would be you know, declassified if we had something that was much closer to what Matt is proposing here. Do you, do you think that that, I mean, that's really yeah. what, what you're talking about, right? And, and Patrick, you know, I, I, I hear people, you know, people will try to use chat GPT, you know, and it hallucinates and you get nonsense out of it. You know, I understand that there's good reason why people might be skeptical, right, as to the limits of uh, technology. 
Um, but let me just point out what the status quo is right now. So uh, people who tried to get records um, from, uh, if I remember right, from the George W. Bush administration, from presidential libraries, were told that at the rate at which they were reviewing and releasing material, it would take 250 years, 250 years before they could produce those records. That's why we're, that's why we're suing them. Yeah. <laughs> so Cato, that, Cato that, has a very aggressive FOIA litigation program yeah. precisely and, and it pains me to have to have us target the National Archives because, you know, as a general rule, I see them essentially most of the time mm -hmm. uh, as the good guys and good gals, you know, trying to actually make a, information available to the public. But, but the simple reality is we have reached a point, and I'm sure, Nate, you share this view as well, where the level of recalcitrance on the part of agencies and departments in terms of releasing information has reached a level where if you're an average FOIA requester without access to your own counsel who can actually go into court, your chances of getting what you're looking for are, I'm not going to say they're absolute zero, mm -hmm. but they're really close to zero. Uh, and that's one of the things that frustrates me, and I know I'm sure it frustrates the both of you, which is why you know, trying to utilize you know, a technology like this I think is so important. I, I will say that we do still have scholars out there um, doing incredible work, even in places like the National Archives of College Park. This particular document that we're showing now is the infamous uh, Martin Luther King Jr. Kill Yourself letter. Uh, uh, and this is the completely unredacted version, and I believe that it was Beverly Gage of Yale uh, who actually came across this version of it. Um, there's still a lot that individual scholars like myself or Dr. Gage and, and others are able to accomplish, and sometimes you can come up with gems like this. But most of the time, you're still dealing essentially with a bureaucratic or legal wall that makes it impossible to actually, you know, get anywhere. And I'll just, I'll tell one quick anecdote from some, my time out at the National Archives in August and September of this year. I've been trying to get into Department of Justice records essentially from the Kennedy and, and LBJ eras uh, for a second book that I'm, I'm working on about domestic surveillance and, and political repression here in the United States. And they actually pulled the record slips um, that identify essentially what records you want to kind of get at, right? The date of the record, um, a brief description of the subject, all the rest of that. They literally barred access uh, to those, those record slips in that Department of Justice group because somebody had a freakout incident over potentially nuclear slash restricted data being referenced. Bear in mind that these record slips have been served to researchers like myself prior to this for literally decades. So when we talk about the lack of a system that is essentially digital in nature, fully keyword searchable, fully indexable, et cetera, that's how I think you ultimately get to a place where you avoid you know, this kind of a problem. I think to answer the, the last person's question along with you guys, I think that there, in the art of the practical, I think that I look to what uh, Steve Garfinkel, an in insider at ISU, said, and Steve Aftergood, uh, Feder Federal Academy of American Sciences, an outsider, said. And they both pointed to some need for an actual drop-dead date, maybe of 40 years. And there's a good article on FAS website. Um, and the, again, the kind of the, the bittersweetness of this is that the Clinton executive order and parts of it remain in the Obama executive order, still in the books, was so close. It used the word automatic declassification, except it made it very easy for the agencies to 
oppose this. And now they do that almost as a knee jerk. So I think the way forward is something that predominantly is like the UK system of a drop dead date. Uh, and maybe there could be AI to find the true secrets provided that it's 1% of the records are less rather than I believe 85% of the records is less as agencies currently improperly claim, I believe. It's, today. it's uh, the last time they published this information, which was several years ago, it showed uh, that the Pentagon withheld 75% of the records that they were reviewing for automatic declassifications. That is like after a quarter of a century, they looked at these records under so-called automatic declassification and they withheld three out of every four. Right? And the rest of it kind of goes into a warehouse somewhere where we're probably never going to see it again. Or maybe someday. Maybe in 250 years. But the CIA was 82%. Right? So that's what automatic declassification actually means. And it's interesting. You know, one of the other topics that you raise in Chapter 3 um, is this shadow broker uh, issue. That, that particular hack that took place. And this is a breach, essentially, that exposed uh, NSA commercial software exploits, and unless I'm mistaken to this day, we still don't know whether that breach was the result of a hack or an exfiltration. But it raises a very interesting question, because here we're not talking about uh, government-originated records. We're talking about vulnerabilities that have been uh, discovered. Should federal agencies be able to essentially classify that data? Should they be allowed, for, for commercial vendors, right, a Microsoft uh, a Google, you know, whoever, should they be allowed uh, to classify the information? Because every one of us, you know, one way or the other is using that kind of software. So there are vulnerabilities. Don't they have an obligation to let the, the vendors know immediately? Well, if we're talking about, uh, you know, commercial software that, you know, could uh, cause problems for national security or could be used, you know, by the U.S. government uh, for national security purposes, they already have the Invention Secrecy Act, right? Uh, so th they can, and they sometimes have, like decided that uh, information uh, or tools or methods you know, or software that's been produced in the private sector, in effect, can be nationalized, right? So, so that is something they they can do, and they they have done it uh, sometimes. Um, so you know, uh, you know, examples like the shadow brokers, though, like to me, it's another example of how it is that we've built such capacity in this country. Um, you know, that $800 billion Pentagon and a classified intelligence budget that has to be, you know, well over $50 billion, that, uh, you know, we have incredible capacity now, you know, to use the latest methods of data science, you know, to do mischief. They can't spare a few million dollars, perhaps, a tiny sliver to do a little bit of research on how it is we can use tools like that to keep government accountable to the American people. I mean, to me, it's just outrageous, you know, and, and I tell the story in this book how it is uh, at the end um, when I thought after we'd done some research, we've shown proof of concept, we had some prototypes, you know, I, I got a briefing at the Intelligence Advanced Research Projects Agency, and they said even though the, Biden, the Obama administration had directed the Director of National Intelligence to have DARPA and IARPA work on developing technology for declassification, I was told to my face by the senior official in IARPA they had no interest. They had no interest in developing this technology. So, I, so unfortunately, like, that's what we're talking about. Well, and, and I guess, you know, in the context of the, the, the mission of these agencies and departments as they see them, mm -hmm. um, keeping secrets is the name of the game because secrets equals power, mm -hmm. right? So if you've got the ability essentially to dominate the information narrative, it, it gives you the ability to essentially 
you know, control outcomes or at least have a lot of influence over the outcomes. Yeah. The other thing that has always annoyed me um, and continues to annoy me on a daily basis is when government officials make the claim that they're taking actions in the name of national security, but they're doing everything they can not to violate people's rights. I love this particular graphic um, from, uh, from Matt's book. This is an example of a highly redacted so-called national security letter. And for those who may not be familiar with it, it is literally an administrative subpoena that FBI agents can use to go to your internet service provider, for example, and ask for just about every bloody thing uh, that they have got on you. And, and they'll, as Matt noted here, um, when you impose a gag order like this on the recipient of these letters, you're telling them, in essence, that they don't have any First Amendment rights. And whether you're talking about an individual proprietor or you're talking about a corporation, um, you know, let's say like Rackspace or you know, um, GoDaddy or whoever, um, that's just, to me, it's just utterly nonsensical. Yeah. Yeah, and what's funny about it, uh, if anything's funny about it, is how you know they are swimming in data. Like one of the most interesting to me, like the most revelatory things that came out of the Snowden leak, uh, was how the NSA was spending fifty million dollars a year on dealing with information overload. <laughs> so they have you know budgets of fifty million dollars at this one agency just to deal with the the overwhelming amount of data they've collected from you, me, and everyone else around the world, and yet and still there is zero money to do anything you know to figure out how to eventually anyway you know allow at least some of this information to get to the American public. And some folks might be, you know, kind of wondering, you know, what, what does this look like in terms of these different classification levels? This is another graphic from Matt's book that kind of gives you a sense of, you know, the relative proportion of things in terms of unclassified, limited official use, confidential, and secret. And you can see here that the vast majority of the information is, in fact, unclassified or it's at an extremely low level. And I should note that Limited official use for official use only, administrative internal use only, sensitive but unclassified, uh, controlled unclassified information. These are dissemination restrictions, so to speak. They are not actual classifications. But it's another way, another very, very angering way <laughs> that these agencies and departments essentially try to withhold information that by all rights should actually be out in the public domain. Can I ask the audience a pop quiz? So uh, I'm a professor. I can't help myself. So uh, can anybody tell me when, from looking at this graph, it's a trick question, when uh, did we transition from you know, the least accountable, most secretive, most unlawful, perhaps, you know, until recently, uh, president that we've had in the 20th century? When did we see the transition to the president who was famously transparent, who gave an interview to Playboy magazine where he admitted to his lust you know, for women who are not his wife, a uh, president who famously campaigned on how he was going to be accountable to the American people and, and be a president that would serve the ideals of democracy because that was a better way. Can you tell? Yeah, it, you can see there's a transition from Nixon, you know, to Ford, to Carter. You can see the dramatic change that made <laughs> in the amount of diploma, diplomacy, diplomatic cables that were classified versus what was unclassified. So this is an example, like, do what you like with executive orders, even with the best will in the world. And Carter, by the end of it, he actually quite liked secrecy. He even said we need to have a new, like, presidential level of secrecy. Some of his aides said we should call it royal. <laughs> this is Jimmy Carter. Even Jimmy Carter was seduced by the dark state. Oh. So, so this is, like, what we're up against. Like, if you think the executive branch is going to reform itself, uh, this is what we're up against.
And this is another example, essentially, of what we're up against. This also, of course, is from Matt's book. And, you know, you reference uh, Nixon's secretary, Mary Rose, uh, Rosemary Woods, and the 18 and a half minutes uh, of uh, missing audio and all the rest of that. But as you point out, that was just literally like one incident in one particular day. Here, you're looking at Kissinger's State Department records and what happened to them. <laughs> well, you know, I had this question from a historian. Uh, she's working on a biography of, of Henry Kissinger. And she said, well, off the record, like, what do you think happened to them? Because it's really kind of interesting. The only way you can produce a graph like this is if you take these millions of State Department cables in electronic form, you know, you look in the database to see which ones have, you know, message text, you know, deleted or message text unreadable. And then you simply, like, count them, right? And you look at that relative to all the other, you know, cables produced at the time. And what you see is, like, these really weird kind of spikes where there are particular periods where, you know, many, many records have gone missing, especially the secret ones, interestingly. Like, the ones that are classified, we don't have any of the top secret cables uh, in this, you know, release from the National Archives. But of the ones that are secret and below, it was five times more likely that secret records were going to go missing compared to the ones that were unclassified. And it's strange, right? Because you would think when they implemented this new system, this was the first time, to my knowledge, the U.S. government created an electronic record system to retain textual records. It started in the State Department. They built it so they could stop leaks, by the way. It started in the Nixon years. Uh, but when they implemented this system, you would think they would have all the kinks worked out by the, you know, three or four years in. Instead, that's when you have these massive losses. <laughs> so I asked, you know, on the record, obviously, <laughs> I told her that I asked the uh, archivist, who's the most knowledgeable about this um, whole system, he's been or had been at the National Archives for almost 50 years. He was actually there in the 1970s. He said we'd never gotten an answer from the State Department. Nobody could explain how this happened. So, so the honest answer is like, I don't know. <laughs> but I'd love for more people to look in on it. And we do know that Henry Kissinger, he famously said, everything that's on paper will be used against me. So he clearly had the motive. <laughs> <laughs> we have uh, a couple of other online questions here that I'd really like to work in while we still have uh, the time. How do other democratic uh, countries handle the declassification of information? Are there lessons the U.S. could learn? I think, Nate, you've kind of spoken to some of that with respect to the U.K. system. Um, not sure that we have a lot of other examples uh, from from countries other than the well, United States. I, I would just say in general, one lesson is that freedom of information laws should be disclosure statutes, not withhold, withholding statutes. Okay. Um, the more successful countries, the laws that people use to request records essentially are used to show that it's um, – not normal for records to be secret, and it's much easier to make them unsecret, where the Freedom of Information Act over the years and bad court rulings and et cetera has flipped that around, and it's more easy for people to use that and use exemptions Pat talked about to withhold. And that goes to another question that we had from David. Uh, can you protest over redacted material? Uh, the short answer is yes. Uh, there is an administrative process within FOIA that you have to exhaust first, uh, but if you still get denied on that administrative appeal, you can, you know, take it to the federal courts, but of course you have to have counsel, you know, that's willing to do that for you. Um, we're down to our last 10 minutes. At this point, I would really like to open it up for our audience here, for anybody who might have questions. We've got some microphones that are going to be coming around here, so if you bear with us for uh, just a second. 
You know, one thing, just while we're waiting, um, you know, there are now more than 100 countries in the world that have something like the Freedom of Information Act. Uh, the U.S. wasn't the first, it was one of the first, and in many ways you could say it, it kind of led the world, you know. And I think we're going to be the first country that's experienced the challenge of how do you deal, you know, with big data when much of it is, is classified. Mm-hmm. Um, so the, the struggles that we're seeing, you know, in the National Archives, which has less funding than military bans, by the way. Pentagon spends more money on bans than this country spends on the National Archives to preserve our national heritage. But they are obviously struggling with this. They're underfunded. Um, and and it's, it's really a chaotic situation. It's only getting worse. But unfortunately, I think this is just the beginning. I think many other countries in the world are going to be running up against the same kinds of challenges. Gentleman down here uh, in front, the jacket and the red tie. If you could give us your name and any affiliation. I'm uh, Peter Humphrey. I'm an intelligence analyst and a former diplomat. I note uh, that the oldest uh, piece of classified information uh, in our system is uh, the formula for an invisible ink, and it dates from about World War I. My question is, uh, we shot down this uh, Chinese spy balloon with a $700,000 Stinger missile instead of a bow and arrow, (laughs) and all this gear came crashing off the coast of the Carolinas. And uh, our government has yet to reveal a single one of the instruments on board that. I wrote a note to the Washington Times saying, hey, why don't you guys look into this? Silence. I wrote a note to the Washington Post saying, hey, why don't you guys look into this? Silence. So I'm wondering, uh, what do we get by withholding from the American people uh, the instruments on a Chinese balloon? Do do we fear like maybe the Chinese might find out? and secondarily, the love letters from Kim Jong-un to uh, Trump, why haven't those appeared in Washington Times or Washington Post? Can you shed light on those two horrific situations? Probably any, any of us could. I mean, in my case, I would say this is another example where it's not completely unreasonable. I think what they wanted to do in some cases, like I think they would rather have never disclosed the U.S. that is, that you know, the Chinese was overflying U.S. territory because they didn't want to reveal what our capabilities are. I mean, obviously, like we could see it, right? <laughs> but what more did we know about it? in terms of like picking up on, on you know, electromagnetic uh, signature and, and, and other things that are kind of above my pay grade. I, so in situations like that, I think sometimes they don't want to reveal, like in this case, what they were able to recover because you know if the Chinese don't know, then, then maybe it's better they don't, right? Um, so there are examples like that that I understand. It may be that the, an adversary in other cases might know something. We don't want them to know that we know. There are other cases, of course, where you know the American people knows, or, or no, I'm sorry, it's just the opposite. Like our adversaries well know, and it's really high time the American people understands better. And Nate has uh, done some work like this, uh, revealing, um, you know, for example, the age. Uh, I'll, I'll let you tell the story, Nate. It's a good one. Actually, it's a really important one in this context. You want to talk to him about Abel Archer? Oh well, I don't think we have <laughs> two hours um, to answer the second part of the question quickly. The um, Kim Jong Un letter are um, covered by the Presidential Record Act, which says that those cannot be released unless Trump did it on his own within five years after he leaves office. So starting in a few months, uh, if if he's not elected, you could uh, file a FOIA for them, but that's a different law. Um, Let's let's go to another question. I can talk. I can talk. On the end here. Thank you, though. 
Thank you. Hi, my name is Todd Wiggins. My website's called Meet Me DMV. And so I can appreciate the subject matter and I wanted to apply it to Area 51. Do you talk about that, about um, you know, UFOs and the fact that this subject was brought up recently again and we still have no serious answer from NASA about what in fact does exist or we know? I love UFOs. Can I take this one? Uh, have at it. Have at it. <laughs> so, you know, it's true. After five years, you can uh, request records from uh, presidential uh, library, or what we now call, whatever we call them, right? I mean, now that they're not going to be any more presidential libraries. Um, but still, when they're presidential records, it takes five years before you can even ask for them. I know somebody who is very diligent, who waited for the moment, you know, when they could first, you know, request information. I think it was from the Clinton years. Um, and in this case, though, they said that they found out, even though they thought they pressed the button the moment it was possible, they were already like number 52 in line. And they were told the first 51 were all about UFOs. <laughs> so there's obviously like tremendous appetite, you know, in the public for more information, what our government knows about them. Now, I have my own theory, but it's not entirely theoretical. Uh, there's a great um, computer scientist named Hannah Wallach. She did a, a really interesting experiment. Uh, she's at Microsoft Research, and what she did was use a technique called topic modeling, where you can cluster records that have similar kinds of language. She did that with all the records that have been released from presidential libraries from the 1970s. And what she was able to do is like cluster the records that were about UFOs, the records were about nuclear weapons, and like 50 other you know groups of, of records. And then she calculated how long it, on average, it took before these records would be released. So how many people here think that it was the nuclear records? Uh, that were the most secret. How many people here think it was the UFO records that were the most secret? Okay, I'm sorry, you're wrong. <laughs> Actually, it was only 14 years before the stuff about UFOs got released, and it was 55 years before the stuff about nuclear weapons gets released. The exception that proves the rule, I had to insist on having that picture in here, was an Air Force program to build flying saucers because they thought they would be stealthy and they would be excellent for reconnaissance and nuclear weapons delivery. So that was the exception that proves the rule. When the US Air Force builds a, a flying saucer, we're gonna keep that secret for half a century. And don't you think, you know, contrary to a lot of Hollywood uh, film scripts, if the Air Force had better evidence, if they had better than the flying Tic Tacs, it turns out they were only going 60 miles an hour. If they had really good evidence that there was alien life forms that were threatening life on Earth, why wouldn't they tell us? <laughs> like, is it like they don't want to cause panic? They love causing panic. I mean, just think, the bomber gap, the missile gap, the Iraqi WMDs, any information at all doesn't even have to be true. If it's going to make people think we have to throw more money at the Pentagon, they're all over it. So, so that's my skepticism when it comes to UFOs. But I'm ready. If there's better evidence, I'm the first one who's going to want to read it. I tend to think that if they're out there, they take one look at what we're doing on this planet to each other, and they think, next, let's, let's, get, to the next, let's get to the next galaxy or the next solar system. <laughs> that's, that's my two cents on that one. Uh, folks, if we could put up uh, the last graphic here uh, that I've got in the package, uh, and we will, get, we will get to your question, ma'am. Hang on one second. Thank you. This side-by-side -side is my favorite uh, out, of the, out of the whole book. They're actually on two different pages. But the one on the left essentially shows you the amount of time that it's taking. And this is the Foreign, Records of the United, the Foreign Relations of the United States uh, collection. We've gone from maybe you know, just a few years in the very beginning of, of the series all the way up to anywhere from 40 to 50 years you know, to see anything, uh, essentially, which is, of course, nuts. 
And then the graph on the other side, of course, shows you know, the, the number of documents. So longer and longer and longer, keeping them secret, fewer and fewer and fewer actually popping out. The gentlelady here had a question, so if we could get the mic to her, thank you. Thank you, I really appreciate um, this lecture. It's been really insightful. I'm Sarah Bronkhorst. I'm a journalist living in DC right now, but I'm from Amsterdam. And I wrote my undergraduate thesis about the Espionage Act and whistleblowing. And I'm just very curious on your take, how should whistleblowers within these organizations navigate the balance between the public interest and also valuing the reasons why those documents were classified at all. We were talking about WikiLeaks and that it's quite a debatable uh, subject, but how should whistleblowers go about in navigating this landscape and respecting both sides of the coin? No, it, it's a great question. Um, I think I'm the only actual former government whistleblower on the panel, so <laughs> I'm, I'm happy to actually take that one. Uh, the existing statutory structure that we have right now for, for whistleblowers to try to protect them, particularly in a national security context, so somebody who works in the intelligence community, FBI, et cetera, is really a, a very bad joke. Um, and I've written about this extensively. Until we get um, a whistleblower protection statutory framework in place that allows someone in a federal agency or department to, at their discretion, at their sole discretion, without having to inform their employer, to go to their member of Congress, their senator, or a committee of jurisdiction without any kind of fear, or the government accountability office, that would be another place, or the office of special counsel. Until we have a structure like that, that's really ironclad, no whistleblower at the end of the day is going to be safe. Um, they're, they're simply not going to be safe. You know, we saw some of this with respect uh, to, in the Trump era where an individual came forward, um, presented information to the intelligence, House Intelligence Committee suggesting that Mr. Trump had in fact engaged in the conduct that he was subsequently impeached for, at least in the House. But there are all kinds of other situations you know, that have come up over the course of the last several decades in which whistleblowers have taken a look and decided that because the, the general protections are just not there, it's better to simply go to the press in order to inform the public. The problem with that is if you signed a secrecy agreement, that opens you up to prosecution. Um, and that's why I generally, if you're, if you're out there, if you're watching this, uh, this particular program, you're in the federal government and you're thinking about blowing the whistle, um, my advice to you is to go to the Project on Government Oversight or the Government Accountability Project, reach out to them use, using secure communications, um, and, and get yourself a lawyer before you do anything. Um, because they will absolutely come after you, even if your disclosure, as in the case of Edward Snowden with respect to domestic surveillance targeting each and every one of us, even if your disclosure is clearly in the public interest, there is no so-called public interest defense. So that's one of the great gaps that we have. Great question. Thank you very much. I think we're going to have to leave it there. We're already a little bit over time. My thanks to Matt Connolly, to Nate Jones, to all of you here in the auditorium, and all of those of you who've been kind enough and patient enough to watch. Thanks so much for joining us. For the Cato Institute, I'm Patrick Eddington.